if you go from a repressive regime that has, it's a police state, where people are murdered and imprisoned by the tens of thousands. Um, and then you go to something other than that, a liberated Iraq, that you go through a transition period. And in every country in, in, in my adult lifetime that's had the, uh, the wonderful opportunity to do that, to move from a repressed dictatorial regime to something that's freer, we've seen in that transition period there's untidiness. And, and there's no question but that that's not anyone's choice. I don't care if somebody decides to loot a Gucci or a Macy's or a Nike because that makes sure that that person eats. That makes sure that that person has clothes. Black Lives Matter Chicago rallied in support of people who looted and are locked up at the police station at 18th and State. That is reparations. Much of the loot in London, Liverpool, Birmingham and Manchester was taken by existing criminal gangs. Others though were people from different backgrounds who saw something they couldn't resist. Obviously I saw opportunity so I went to it, innit? And what did you get then? Oh, what did I get? Tracksuits, couple electronic stuff. I've done this basically to provide for my family, innit? Like, I've got some stuff for my son, yeah? and I got some stuff for me, like some clothes, trainers. You're 16 years old, but you were getting stuff for your son? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I had to get some stuff for him. So what then, did you get for him? I got him clothes, I got him nappies, powder, the whole Johnson set. On the other hand, if you think of those pictures, very often the pictures are pictures of people going into the symbols of the regime, into the palaces, into the boats, and into the Bath Party headquarters and into the places that have been part of that repression. And, and while no one condones looting, uh, on, on the other hand, one can understand the pent-up feelings that, that may result from decades of repression and people who've had members of their family killed by that regime, for them to be taking their feelings out on that regime. What does the looting, the televisions, the shoes, the whatever you, you're looting for, have to do with Rodney King. So why why did you do it? You have to understand what happened to why we did it. Okay, yeah, the I'm reason trying. we did it was because we needed self-satisfaction. Huh. We had no satisfaction in, it, in what happened to Rodney King. 425 years of being unsatisfied, what am I to do? Mm -hmm. What am I to do? I'm looking at the news and they telling me my life is not worth a nickel. They telling me that they could beat me, they can do whatever they want to me whenever they feel like it. Huh. And I was supposed to accept this and say, well, we'll just go vote and make it better. It hasn't been better. We've been voting for years, and it's not, it's not changing. When after, after the stuff that you got, some of the things that you got, did you feel better after that? Definitely. I felt better. You felt 100%. better? 100% better. I you can't, did. I can't even lie. I, I, I feel better. What is Trump's response, you know? To the, I don't know if he's responded to this, but they were saying that Hannity said that it was like a hit job or whatever. Uh -huh. Which is like obviously ridiculous because it, <laughs> it was an interview with him. Yeah, I don't know. We're recording the day after that. Um, the 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 Bob Woodward revelation, the bombshell, yeah. the bombshell. Uh, that I mean, legitimately, I, I I mean, outrageous and would be a huge scandal if anybody else was president. Of yeah, tr I mean, of Trump in February. Uh, talking about how bad coronavirus was going to be and then we obviously all know what happened which is that he has downplayed and continues to downplay the virus uh ever since um and i don't i mean it's obviously not just trump like 
everybody knew how bad this was. This was, you know, this was February into March and April. Fauci and Trump and everybody were still saying, like, not to wear masks yep. if you're not a nurse. Yep. Um, and we're, like, making fun of people who wanted to wear masks. I mean, I don't, I don't think there ever will be a reckoning about that because it implicates Democrats and Republicans and, like, people like Fauci who are, like, purportedly non-political actors in government. But, I mean, that, that ought to be a huge scandal and reckoning that, you know, for months they were you know, ridiculing the idea of wearing masks and saying, you know, knowingly spreading disinformation. Like, you know, saying things like actually wearing a mask could increase your chances of getting COVID. Right. If I'm a viewer at home and I'm seeing all these reports about the coronavirus, should I wear a mask? Oh, absolutely not. Here to discuss, we have the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Jerome Adams, who's urging the public to, doctor, you're saying stop using masks because unless you've got the coronavirus you shouldn't be wearing it right absolutely one thing that does not work uh, for the general public is actually wearing a mask and when we wear those we actually have to be specially fit tested otherwise uh, they don't protect you from diseases like the coronavirus and they may actually increase your risk because you're more likely to touch your face and adjust it i mean there is no reason for anyone right now in the united states with regard to coronavirus, to wear a mask. We have 15 cases that have been identified, isolated, and their contacts have been traced. And I think there's this misperception that wearing a mask, uh, even if you were in an area where there was transmission, is gonna absolutely protect you. A mask is more appropriate for someone who is infected to prevent them from infecting someone else. It's important for folks to know that right now their risk as American citizens remains low. There are things that people can do to stay safe. There are things they shouldn't be doing and one of the things they shouldn't be doing the general public is going out and buying masks. It actually uh, does not help. It's not been proven to be effective in preventing spread of coronavirus amongst the general public and actually people who tend to buy masks and don't know how to wear them properly as a healthcare provider I have to get fit tested. Folks who don't know how to wear them properly tend to touch their faces yeah. a lot and actually can increase the spread of coronavirus. You can increase your risk of getting it by wearing a mask if you are not a healthcare provider. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, this Trump thing is uh, is outrageous. I mean, just hearing him like a month before he was acknowledging COVID, at which point he downplayed it and said it's not serious, you know, a month before that saying like, yeah, this is, <laughs> you know, like specifically saying like, yeah, this is worse than the flu. Like this is way worse than the flu. Like yeah. this is going to kill five times as many people as the flu or whatever, or it's five times as contagious. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know, he knows it travels by air and yeah. says that now famous line. Yeah. I, I've always wanted to play it down to not cause a panic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thing people are pointing out is, is it, it did, Bob Woodward act unethically by sitting on this for six months. Yeah. Which, like, yeah, probably. Has he responded to that at all? Like, I think he did respond to that. Did he promise Trump not to publicize these interviews until the book came out or something like that? Because I can kind of understand that. But, yeah, I think it, I think it is pretty unethical to sit on that. Yeah, um... This is the USA Today. Mm -hmm. Bob Woodward defends keeping revelations about Trump and coronavirus quiet until book release. Mm-hmm. He tells me this, and I'm thinking, wow, that's interesting, but is it true? 
Uh, Trump says things that don't check out, right? Woodward told AP referring to Trump's habit of stretching or misrepresenting the truth. And he said he had to determine what did he know and when did he know it, borrowing a phrase from his reporting on the uh, for the post on the Watergate break. Yeah, right. I mean, that doesn't really hold up to scrutiny. I mean, first of all, whether it's true or not, it's a story that the president is saying it. And it clearly didn't take you six months to the book release to to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, he probably I mean, he probably did act unethically sitting on it for six months. Yeah. Would it have made a huge difference if he released it in March when he knew about it? Like, I don't think so. I don't think this is going to make a huge difference. No. That doesn't mean it's not, like, an outrageous scandal. It is. I mean, but I just don't know how you, you, you make a dent in anything anymore. Like, I don't, I don't think anybody cares. <laughs> yeah, so I don't care. I, like, honestly don't give a shit about this story, really. Like... I'm kind of annoyed that it's on my timeline. I really just want to read about the woman who's having sex with, uh, like, somebody else because her husband is having sex with somebody else or whatever. Uh, <laughs> the cut story. Yeah. The fake news cut story. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, but I mean, sure. I mean, you do agree that the, the administration totally botched and mismanaged the coronavirus yes. response yeah on purpose and on purpose like, yeah uh jared Car- you know i think the uh i i, I think this is you so know, are you basically just saying like there's no new information here kind of yeah yeah and, like yeah, if yeah. he had if woodward had uh you know blasted this out at the time when the interview happened uh what would the difference have been like from what i've seen the tapes say that Trump acknowledges that it is, you know, worse than the flu in these terms that he could then later qualify and say, like, yeah, it's worse than the flu, but that doesn't mean it's going to come here. You know, uh, we've cut off travel from China. Uh, you know, it just seems like he has plausible deniability on basically every front here. Uh, and, you know, doesn't everyone expect Trump? Like, is this anything that surprises anyone aside from real, uh, you know, there is no virus truthers? Well, right. I mean, it is a window into that, you know, Trump Trump was saying something privately as uh, than what he was saying publicly uh, for months, right. right? Yeah. I mean, he was, he. you know, I mean, again, I, I agree with you to the extent of, like, what difference does it make or who cares? But, like... You know, there's always the question, how much does he believe his own con? How, totally. how, how much is he uh, lying or stupid? Uh, and it's like, yeah, he was clearly just lying because he didn't want to create a panic. Well, right. So what he says is, I didn't want to create a panic. Like, he even gives an excuse in his yeah. uh, revelation to Bob Woodward, uh, which makes it seem like he didn't care very much about saying it. And this just seems like small potatoes compared to the Jared Kushner story about how Jared Kushner, you know, assembled the Justice League to handle coronavirus. And then when he uh, felt like it was only going to affect blue states and big cities, sat on it because he understood that it would kill people there and make uh, the governing bodies in those places look bad. Uh, So, like, what is this compared to – if Jared Kushner knew that – I guess you could say, like, maybe Trump didn't believe it, and Jared Kushner was evil and Trump was dumb. They were, like, the get-fuzzy pair, uh, like, divided down that way. But, like, 
Uh, yeah, I just don't know uh, what difference it would have made to hear Trump say, like, one slightly different thing. I felt like he was ping-ponging a lot at that time, saying, like, yeah, we understand that if it gets out of control, it could be really bad, but, like, we don't think it's going to get that way. And people would say, well, what do you think, you know, uh, and, like, I will look back for some of these clips, because I remember some of them being really shocking at the time, in the way that Trump stuff is shocking, which is, like, just in the background noise. Uh, but, yeah, saying, like, well, what if it comes here? And him saying, well, it's not going to, we're trying to keep it from getting to that place and saying like i think pretty consistently at that time i don't want to create a panic like uh, about this like you guys are trying to create a panic and even when you know uh, yes like part of that was denying the truth about this thing which obviously is an enormous crime uh i just don't see that this changes a whole lot sure or will change a whole lot of people's opinions about what trump did or why he did it yeah i mean i think that's right i don't i mean yeah i don't I think someone today who's planning on voting for Trump, there's not really anything you can do to convince them otherwise. I feel like those people, which is, you know, whatever, 46% of voters are pretty bought into anything. Yeah. Uh, who we found yeah. out this week, 52% or whatever, a majority of people in battleground states who are planning to vote believe that both Biden and Trump are mentally unfit for their jobs and, like, are still planning yeah. on voting for them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, you gotta vote for one of them. <laughs> you gotta like, vote for one of the demented, uh, <laughs> A majority rapists, of right? people planning to vote for Trump, uh, believe that he is mentally unfit for yeah. the job of the president, and yet they will vote for him. Or, uh, there were, there's polling this week that Trump is leading with Latinos in Florida. <laughs> Unbelievable. And Biden just hired Anna Navarro yeah. to handle that problem. Like yeah, she's right. handled a lot of uh, uh, Latinos who don't go the um, way you want them to politically. I there was like a Nate Silver map where it was like you know given the you know whatever if you take seriously like the the polling on like Latinos in Florida like here's here's the likely outcome and it's a map that shows Biden winning two seventy to two sixty nine. <laughs> <laughs> like, and, yeah that's i mean that's what they're trying to do they're trying to eke out the narrowest possible victory um and if they lose they're fine with it right. like i mean in as individuals right biden is fine with it everyone working in his campaign are fine with it it won't it, it won't prevent them from getting their next job or anything yeah uh it's not like if Bernie Sanders won the primary where all of these fucking people would would be out of a gig. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, like Obama is using the California fires to say, vote the fires out. Yeah. <laughs> this will just create yeah. a bigger disaster that the Democrats laid the groundwork for, knew was going to happen, and have no problem with, uh, so that they can leverage it next time to hector the same people into supporting them. Yeah. Uh, or like Gavin Newsom, the governor of California. Like, uh, <laughs> We're all trying to figure out who did this. Yeah, right. <laughs> Being like, uh, like the, you know, this many acres burned in 2019. Like, you know, this many acres are burning this year. Climate change is real. And it's like... Like you're just like a like an like an Instagram influencer, right? Like, that's what you are now. Like the governor of California is like uh, can't. I mean, it, it's the governor of yeah. California. Like, how much higher do you have to get? You have he is blackmailing you into making Gavin Newsom the president because if he's not the president, he's not responsible for any of this. But, right, and I mean, even if he is the president, all he can all he can do is raise awareness, right? Yeah, uh, I, I've seen people putting that quote around this week uh, from Adolf Reed of like, you know, Democrats don't believe in 
in governing, they just believe in bearing witness to suffering, <laughs> which yeah. is true. And I mean, very similar to the Adam Curtis thing. I mean, it's just like, yeah, it's neoliberalism, right? Like, yeah, they long ago, like, uh, gave up on the idea of shaping events and are now just r- resigned to, to managing perception. Yeah. And so part of that, yeah, Democrats don't believe in governing. They just believe in like bearing witness to suffering. And then also, like, Democrats don't believe in governing. They just believe in, like, raising awareness. Yeah, right. Whereas I I think Trump's, you know, I didn't want to cause a panic line speaks to the conservative position, which is... Which is also perception management. Yeah, exactly. In the opposite direction. It's, you know... This is normal, and, like, and it's the, just going to yeah, happen. And when he talks about creating a panic, he's talking about the stock market. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. He's not talking about, like, among the populace or yeah, something. Yeah, obviously, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which I mean... Yeah, it's that Ben Shapiro line about, well, obviously, what do you think is going to happen if the sea level rises six feet? People are just going to move. Yeah. It's, like, getting people ready for that. Uh, whereas Democrats, yeah, are getting people ready to uh, say that they were the good guys <laughs> during this time because they, uh, yeah, rose awareness about it. Getting people ready to be the virtuous losers and getting people ready to be the uh, callous murderers. Uh, just what our two parties are for. Yeah, I mean, the photographs coming out of California this week of the wildfires are horrifying yeah of just like you know people like at 10 in the morning and the and the sun is blotted out yes yeah and the, the, at 12 30 yeah. in the afternoon and just like the the quality of the light like everything's like blood red because of the you know the interference from all the ash from these wildfires right and that yeah. incredible photo this is the one that really gets me the fire on the other side of the golden gate bridge Ooh, yeah which of course obviously this uh, climate change is a huge factor in this of course it also ha- a major factor is you know specific uh california land management policies yeah absolutely i mean you're not like just a republican for saying that like it does have to do with generations of like uh like redirecting water and you know managing forests and stuff yeah, um, in favor of uh, the oligarchy yeah, that right. uses it to like grow yeah, to pistachios. benefit a very very small amount of people. Yeah, and then also yeah, like in the Bay Area, uh, what is it? PG and E, the like yeah. private company that is like has a monopoly on um, on bringing electricity into people's homes, and now they're doing like controlled blackouts and stuff right. because their infrastructure has never been you know kept up or anything. Uh, like amidst a a, a a pandemic, I mean. San Francisco has, like, you know, a huge homeless... I mean, they have, like, favelas in San Francisco. Yeah. And, I mean, they're hardly alone. Like, I'm in Chicago. There's a favela, like, down the street from me. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. But, it's, but obviously, the homeless problem is particularly bad in San Francisco. And now just all those people are just, like, yeah, like, living out on the streets amidst a pandemic, amidst, like wildfires that are like destroying the air quality and like 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 control blackouts too it's just so like third world america i've seen a bunch of people saying you know if this doesn't convince you that the u.s has lost the mandate of heaven you know like (laughs) like this is what fires like this are supposed to communicate is not a you know single issue failure like climate change like obama would have you believe or like the corporate uh, environmental lobby would have you believe uh it is a society it's a sign and an expression and an embodiment of societal collapse and yeah, yeah universal world nature collapse 
Yeah, really bad. Yeah, and for Obama to be tweeting about this now, like, I I know that this is not an original opinion. It's not even the first time we've said this on the podcast. I just fucking hate Obama. Yeah. <laughs> just, like, uh, yeah, tweeting these pictures of the I wildfires. Like, what a fucking disgrace. And people saying, you know, Biden's gonna bring us back into the Paris Accord, uh, as if, like, Gavin Newsom hasn't approved 48... Uh, fracking permits since like April, as if Obama. Yeah, and Joe Biden won't uh, has made it very clear that he won't ban fracking. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Obama has bragged about uh, turning the U.S. into one of the biggest producers of uh, fossil fuels. Uh, that was one of their key accomplishments yeah. in their reign. So, uh, yeah, you can only imagine what they're going to do with another four or eight or however many years. Yeah, I don't know. It's all. It's all, like, really fucked up. <laughs> Just makes me want to go smash some windows and take some TVs. <laughs> yeah, I know. Enjoy the carnivalesque moment of freedom. Yeah. <laughs> that is taking something from someone else and giving it to yourself. Yeah, let's talk about In Defense of Looting. Yeah. So I read the whole book. Yeah, what what is, what is this book? Okay. This so, book was, like like, in the last few weeks... This book has become a, like, big, yeah, talking point, like, uh... Yeah, I I feel like it's already kind of dropped off, you know? Yeah, because it's so stupid, right? Right, it was so thin, uh, just no one was willing to defend it, and no one was willing to really go after it, because it doesn't seem to really represent anyone. So who is this person that wrote it? So, Vicky Osterweil, whom, yeah, like, so Vicky Osterweil... Basically, uh, she is a writer for, or has been a writer for The New Inquiry, which, like, do you ever read The New Inquiry? No, what the fuck? It's mostly cultural commentary. Like, it's the kind of think pieces that, so first of all, uh, Vicky Osterweil has written for a couple of other publications. Uh, often, she, like, is, uh, does she come from, like, a rich family or something? I think so. Like, her dad is a professor or something like that. Ah. Uh, I mean, she comes from an intellectual family. Right. Uh, you know, she is not a poor, like, she's not a, a prole. Like, whatever, yeah. Whatever. She's white, uh, she's Jewish, and as Matt Taibbi, like, might as well have put in bold font in his review, she's trans. Oh, should we talk about, speaking of white and Jewish, should we talk about Jessica Krug? I, I was gonna bring up Jessica Krug. <laughs> I actually think, I actually, like, I think that Jessica Krug mindset is very related to In Defense of Looting. Oh, mindset. yeah, great. Yeah. They, they definitely are related. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. We uh, I, I included it as the intro for our episode last week, but it was only like after we stopped recording that you were telling me about. Yeah, the academic Dolezal. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Jessica Krug is that woman who again was pretending to be black, and then they they like found another one too. Really, yeah. <laughs> round up the remnant bands of Dolezals. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, uh, and it's it's kind of incredible. Uh, there is this clip. I it was removed from YouTube from the video that I saw, but I think I'll be able to find it in time to clip it into this show. Where Jessica Krug is, I'm like jumping the gun a little bit, but uh, I think there is something related there that Jessica Krug. Uh, has this incredible uh, line when she's on a panel at one point and people were like sharing this on Twitter. It's revolting. Uh, she's talking about the murder of a 15-year-old oh, kid. Yeah. You saw this? Yes, yeah, so uh, I saw this, but I, I didn't know all the, the context of it. Yeah, I, I have to be honest and say I don't know all of the context yeah, of it, honestly. Um, but she's talking about this case, and I'll try to, again, find the clip and clip it in. And here I'm thinking about um, how many people in this room are familiar with um, Leandro Guzman, Feliz. 
a 15-year-old boy uh, who was murdered in the Bronx last year. Um, so if you're in New York, you probably heard a lot about this. Um, <clears throat> and the narrative around it is that he was an innocent kid who was mistaken for a bad kid. Right? He was a kid who was um, hacked apart with machetes in front of a bodega in the Bronx. Um, and the idea is that he was mistaken for someone else um, by Trinitarios, right, who are a Dominican gang um, that comes out of Rikers, as most of the radical politics of New York City has done for many, many years. Um, but the part of the story that gets emphasized in different ways is that he was an explorer, right, which is a program that the NYPD has to bring youth in um, to eventually work for them. And so when I think about this politics of silence that I'm talking about in the archives, right, and how silence can be a really radical presence historically, I think it's a radical presence today. Um, when people talk about snitches get stitches, right, or when we think about um, a history of anti-apartheid st struggle in South Africa and necklacing, right, um, and that kind of violence towards people who are collaborating or who are working against uh, their communities, we have to consider a radical moment in 2018 in which people are using machetes to hack apart a 15-year-old boy who's working with the police. The way the story about his innocence and the inherent violence of the people who hacked him apart become the narrative we tell. How about, about how the loss of innocence is the story we mourn. And it's so much more difficult to understand what kind of freedom could we achieve by being willing to confront those within the community who are working against the interests of the community as a whole at the end of a machete. Um, so I will end there. Thank you for listening. But she's talking about the murder of this 15-year-old kid by uh, gang members in New York City and the way that this was used as kind of, you know, uh, uh, like, yeah, blood ac accusation against, like, gang culture, uh, Latinos, uh, you know, whatever, um, the underclass in New York City. And, like, that's all true and, like, obvious and, you know, helpful to point out. And then she goes a step further and says, actually, this 15-year-old was snitching to the cops. So, like, can we understand this moment of liberation and possibility in hacking to death? And, like, she talks about hacking this person's body into pieces. Uh, can we understand, you know, the possibility that's opened up by hacking apart a police informant who is also this innocent 15-year-old child? Who's, you know, all the discourses are about the innocence of this kid. Like, uh, the hegemonic idea that the 15-year-old who is a snitch is the innocent party. You know, must we, yeah. mustn't we question that? And it is so clear, like... Jessica Krug, a lot of people, uh, I think, under, at least like some of the people I've talked to, understand uh, this phenomenon of dolezalism as like a mental illness. But obviously there's a social illness that's expressed with these people. Um, and I, I'm not comparing, like, uh, I, I'm not saying that Vicky Osterweil is a, a Krug or whatever, is a dolezal or whatever. Uh, but I think this kind of position of remove uh, where you can romanticize uh, certain kinds of violence and like put your academic theories yeah. onto them uh, you know project uh, these kind of like yeah uh, manichaean struggles onto uh, these things that I think to any you know just like thinking casual observer uh, express just like a desperation and tragedy and, you know, obviously our condemnations in and of themselves of the society we live in without endorsing them and saying that they are magical moments. Uh, Vicki Osterwild uses this language of magic actually pretty consistently in, in defensively. Yeah, I mean, it seems like very much the product of the depolitization of the left 
you know, over generations and it becoming, you know, basically the left exists in academia. Yes. And the left is a movement within academia. And media. Yeah, and media. And therefore it becomes less about, it becomes less about, you know... Uh, building power or people organizing with due to like shared interests and more about like purifying your soul with yes. the right theory absolutely and like who has the best theory i mean we were t- i i read a couple pages of the vicky osterweil thing i can't believe you read the whole thing yeah or as much of it as you did read yeah um i i basically i i skimmed through some of the yeah. chapters but i basically read the whole thing but yeah. i read the like that the thing about like looting is uh is fem as fuck that's the famous line yeah yeah because it's so absurd it's and because yeah. it's like you're not this isn't this is you know the language of critical theory or like academic leftism but like yeah, in fact, you are Jordan Peterson. Yes. Like, in fact, you are a Jungian. <laughs> like, like when you say looting is femme as fuck, you are no different. I mean, it is. I this and this has become part of like, uh, like that fucking white fragility lady did it too, where yep. it's like, like you know, uh, whiteness is um, like order and quantifying linear time, and linear time. Yeah. Um. And and yeah, like uh, like quantitative and and like black is uh like deconstructing and qualitative and uh and it's like well this is pretty fucking racist yeah exactly. but, but but even more than that it's it's nonsense yes right <laughs> it's like i mean you are no different than jordan peterson being like uh like the feminine is a chaotic dragon yeah, right. and the masculine is like a knight like uh instilling order yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, this is something that, yeah, I, I think you're totally right about where this comes from, which is, uh, yes, this, it sounds oxymoronic, but this depoliticization of the left. Um, and I think you can trace, uh, so I sent you this particular passage that I want to come back to. Uh, I want to go through some of my notes. But I, I think if eventually you have to trace this kind of phenomenon uh, and this tendency in the left to the, yeah, the, like, the orphaning of the left from any kind of uh movement with any success yeah. or any kind of uh, yeah influence <laughs> in the like, real world yeah it's, it's like that tweet from a few days ago from a week ago or whatever when everyone was like we're gonna do a general strike like general yeah. strike is happening yeah right it's general strike time guys come on uh and then someone immediately tweeted like I'm so happy that we're doing a general strike, but let's remember to, like, center, like, POC voices or whatever. And, like, you know, white people need to stand back in our general strike and, like, <laughs> like forward. Which is, like, first of all, there's no fucking general strike right, happening. Right. Like, like, this is all just happening in your fucking head. <laughs> Twitter. But, uh, but it's also, like, I mean, yeah, I... I I mean, it is the antithesis of the left. I mean, it is the death of the political left. Right. The whole idea of the political left is that workers can organize together based on their shared interests, not because they have the right opinions about everything or because they're good or virtuous, but because by virtue of their labor relation and their role within capital, they are extremely powerful. Right. And if they can organize, then, you know, through organizing, it is you know awakening to their power that's right um and i mean it's like yeah i mean it's like what if there's trump supporters in your union it's like well that that, that's good that means your union is strong like if even if even trump supporters are joining your union that's a sign of your power uh that's not a problem yeah exactly uh because it's not just about having the right opinions it's actually about affecting uh material outcomes 
Yeah, and you know you're you're talking in uh, you know pretty Marxist terms. Uh, like I don't think Vicky Osterweil really is a no. Marxist. No, uh, of course not. And most of the American left is uh, the vast majority of the American left is not Marxist. They are Trotskyite, anarchist uh, influenced. Yeah, they're uh, not. Like, I mean, they're not even Trotsky. Yeah. They're they're unions. Like, <laughs> yeah, they are. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're Marcusians. Yeah, <laughs> uh, like they're they they are Jordan Peterson. They are left. Petersonians. Uh, and I, I just, this is jumping in yeah. a little bit, but um, this is, you know, Osterweil references Marxists by name in her yeah. book often and talks about black Marxist parties in the U.S. and stuff like that. But one of the few times that she engages with any of Marx's theory is this passage that I thought was fascinating. This is in a discussion about the riots in uh, the 60s in like uh, these, uh, she, you know, does this um, history of riots and looting in the U.S. Uh, that marks this specific period that I think most historians would agree with, this, like, 64 to 68 period of, uh, you know, in the black liberation struggle, these riots uh, in urban spaces. And she talks about... Sometimes they come out of that subterranean, invisible, but ongoing movement for freedom, justice, and jubilee that Karl Marx called the, quote, historical party, end quote, that runs through the entire history (laughs) of capitalism, reappearing seemingly suddenly and spontaneously. Those specific histories of uprisings always tell a more complicated story of rising local tensions and grievances. But, right, like, the local tensions and grievances that create and actually, you know, are essential to every riot— are secondary to this kind of eternal spirit of liberation. And, like, I mean, I don't know if she's actually doing this, but it sounds like it in that context, like, like actually, like, changing the meaning of party. To yes. be like, having a party. Like That's exactly like right. We're, we're throwing a revolutionary party. Okay, so, all right. Can I get into my notes here? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I think you have to talk... I think we have to talk about the aesthetics of this book. Sure. If this book is so much about aesthetics, right? It is yeah. all about, uh, like, this moment of feeling uh, and how people feel in riots and in the position of looting. Yeah. This is the cover of this book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like... I mean, it's like all of these shitty fucking books. It's like Malcolm Gladwell or something. Exactly but right. But there's a crowbar. Yes. Yeah. It's a uh, white cover with a crowbar on it. Yeah. And yeah, this uh, in defense of looting and all caps uh, yeah. title. Yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, yeah, like it looks like Freakonomics. Exactly. It looks like yeah. uh, Malcolm Gladwell, Mary Roach. Yeah. And uh, it might as well be called Froosh, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, and the whole aesthetic of this book is like this. Like, this is the contents page, which is like, okay, like everything looks like yeah. this this is the page where the fem is fuck uh line <laughs> is this like yeah the like paragraph breaks are like what molotov cocktail or it looks something. like lit matches to yeah me, yeah but they are these yeah they're these kind of abstracted um silhouettes of lit matches you know three of them that look identical as the paragraph breaks or the intro chapter breaks or whatever yeah. i don't know the technical publishing term for these uh and this I just could not find a better expression of the way that this book channels this kind of romanticization of chaos and looting and rioting into the most middle brow bland, non-risky aesthetic uh, that is so typical of all these New York publishing houses. Uh, I really, for most of this book, until I got to the um, acknowledgments or the afterword or whatever at the end, yeah, the acknowledgments section, uh, I really thought 
that this book, especially based on the reporting I had seen about it, seemed to confirm a lot of this. But uh, my my guess was that like this had been uh, rushed out. That basically, because Osterweil wrote an essay in 2014 called "In Defense of Looting" during Ferguson, during right Ferguson. In the aftermath of Ferguson. Exactly. This is where her thesis comes from. This is like her only expertise, it seems, or reason that she you know was hired to uh, uh, write this book. Most of her writing, otherwise, is like cultural critique. It's like talking about movies. There's an article she did about Uva Bull's weaponized cinema, which is like if I hear weaponized cinema in a headline one more time I swear to Christ uh, but yeah like uh, this is one of the few times that Osterweil actually engaged with a political topic in the real world uh, in the new inquiry and it was this 2014 essay and so what I figured when I was reading this was that this book was so sloppy and so surface level that someone must have commissioned it the second the George Floyd uprising began and uh, pushed this out in three months based on like it, they looked for anyone who had written an essay that was in defense of looting and just uh, commissioned that person to do this um, turns out that's not the case at least according to Osterweil in the acknowledgments she says it took me five years to write this book uh <laughs> apparently she was commissioned like a year after her essay and it took her five years to write this book and it, like she says that the final draft uh was or the final manuscript was handed in the first weekend when the george floyd uprisings began and that they were doing final um editions and edits while the uprising began just that first weekend in late may uh, this year. So, but this is how the book reads is it is, uh, it, it is like so, yes, yeah, so thin. Can I just give you the list of chapters? Chapter one is the racial roots of property, which is basically, after the introduction, there's the racial roots of property, which is basically just a recapitulation of early American history uh, with a K. And like, could have come from A.J. Soprano's reading of Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. Like, she even quotes that line from Columbus uh, that's like, they would make great servants. Like, she might as well have put in, you know, with 40 men, we could subjugate them. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it, like, is as engaged with the history as that, basically. Uh, like, I, I'm exaggerating very slightly, but, like, yeah, it just made, made me imagine, like, A.J. Soprano in black block outfit, like, stopping people from uh, attacking a Best Buy. Like, this is the kind of engagement with this history. And most of, a ton of the chapters are like this, where there, it is very little of the chapter is actually about looting in any way. It is just a historical kind of story, like catechism, that you have to, uh, you know, if you are uh, like a right-thinking person, you should believe all these things about how history in the U.S. moved forward. And like a lot of it, I agree with. And I think, you know, the benefit of the first chapter, the racial roots of property, is this kind of uh, provocative point that comes from, uh, that at least like is also expressed in the 2014 essay, uh, which is, you know, that uh, the, uh, you know, in some ways the original looting in the U.S. was runaway slaves and people who liberated slaves because they were looting the property that was people. And this is kind of the ideal of looting in American history. Uh, if, you know, if, if you say, like, stealing is always bad, well, this is an example of stealing that is, you know, everyone would agree at this point, uh, you know, who's not a total reactionary, that this was a good thing. Um, and she uses this as kind of the model for looting right. throughout American history. What, the Underground Railroad, basically? Uh, yeah, or maroon communities, you know, individuals right. running away. In fact, she's like she talks about the, the Underground Railroad and, um, you know, 
the organized spy network that Harriet Tubman had, but like spends a lot more time on individuals who spontaneously, uh, you know, have some grievance or whatever uh, that like pushes them too far or, or you know find the opportunity and escape one on one. Um, you know, this is like the eternal party, this the historical party or whatever. Also, this is the first line in the introduction that I just like I think is really fascinating to kind of position what where Osterweil is coming from. Um, and I think gets us into like the discourse around this too. On page one, the first line of the many forms of political action in 21st century America, it's hard to think of any less popular than rioting and looting. Would you agree with that? Wait, say that again. In she says of the many forms of political action in 21st century America, it's hard to think of any less popular than rioting and looting. Of any political action that's less popular than rioting and looting? Like, do you think lobbying is more popular than yeah. rioting? I mean, yeah, what a weird, like, formulation. Like, uh, yeah, like, like, how popular a political action is. Uh, I also think, you know, this is this has so much to do with who this book is for. And this is what the aesthetics of the book are really yeah. about, too, is, like, this is not a book for the underclass. This book is not supposed to inspire anybody to loot or to riot. This is supposed to be a justification, an apology of rioting and looting for the kind of people who buy this book, who want it on right. their bookshelf. And that's, I think, like really what this is about is producing a product, which is why it looks this way. It looks like every other fucking book, product book that comes out of New yeah. York. It's about a, a product that someone can buy to put on their bookshelf to indicate what kind of person they are. And this thing about, of the many forms of political action, it's hard to think of any less popular than rioting and looting. I think that's been totally disproven by everyone's reaction to the George Floyd uprising. Osterweil even cites in a bunch of those interviews, like the, uh, God, I can never remember this guy's name, the uh, New Yorker Chotter. What's his name? Chatterton Williams, that guy. Not Chatterton Williams, the guy Chotten, the guy who like uh, interviews. Oh, people. Chotner. 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 The, the gotcha interviewer. Exactly. Did an interview with Osterweil, and uh, she brings up the study that often gets misquoted, and she kind of misquotes it too. That you know, uh, actually, like the burning down of the police station in Minneapolis, the third precinct or whatever, uh, was supported by most people who were asked about it. They were like, that's justified. Um, Chotner actually says, like, that study doesn't quite say that. Like, it mostly says that, uh, you know, the majority of people, uh, like, supported at least somewhat the rioters' actions generally. It doesn't ask specifically about the burning down of the police station. But I, I think, like, it's kind of clear from the way uh, people I know have reacted, the way the media has even reacted, the way, yeah, that, like, people understand popular political action in the U.S., that, like, rioting is actually kind of accepted and uh, supported by some people. Uh, there are people who, like, I think make distinctions uh, between certain kinds of rioting, uh, but I think there are a lot of people who view it as kind of a holdover from the civil rights period as, like, a one of the positive forms of political uh, action in a way that, like, People don't think of, like, I don't know, uh, yeah, like, consultants as popular. Like, yeah. who for whom are these people popular, or these kinds of actions popular? I think it's the ruling class that she's really talking about here. So all, all of this book is like this. It is just a kind of academic uh, explanation of, like, what is the problem with property and the American fixation on property? What are its racialized origins? Like, that all is true, and I get that. 
Uh, but then, like, to call your book in defense of looting, like, isn't quite accurate in the way she does this. So, okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think if we, you know, as leftists were to do our defense of looting, yeah. it would be very different than this book. And I think, you know, in the early weeks of the uprising, I think we articulated it, basically, which is that, I mean, I'll, I'll speak for myself. Yeah. It's not about defending looting or not defending looting. It's about understanding uh, the conditions that produce uprisings and looting. And, like, you can't really separate the mass protests from the fact that some people are looting. And, I mean, do I want to defend looting? Do I want to say that looting's good or bad? I mean, this is also, like, you're not a socialist. I mean, she's obviously not a socialist. But, like, you're not a socialist and you're or, or a leftist or anything at this point if you're interested in being like, this thing is good or bad. <laughs> That's, like... That's that's moralism. Like yes. that's a fundamentally like moralistic framing. Like you're actually just a Puritan. Like it's not about if it's good or bad. Like looting is what ha- like I mean it's like saying is it good or bad for a pot of water to boil. Yeah. Like it's not about if it's good or bad. This is what happens to a pot of water when you subject it to the proper conditions for long enough. Right. And at a certain point, if you put a bunch of people together in a city and you deprive them of the resources they need and yeah, and of, humiliate and them humiliate every day humiliate them and um yeah they don't have access to resources they and they don't have any other recourse they you know you've broken down any kind of like political organizing and you know you just are like vote like <laughs> oh yeah your your community's like um been <laughs> like been underfunded and you know under-resourced for generations uh, you know, in your primarily democratic city, vote! Like, this is why you need to vote! Like, th- I mean, that kind of shit, where it's like basically just saying we're going to do nothing for you. Right. But when you subject people to these conditions for long enough, there is going to be a violent rupture at some point. It becomes inevitable. When the system can't reform itself, it becomes inevitable. So, like, is looting good? Right. I mean, n- I mean, no. Like, obviously, like, uh, uh, a mass political movement would be good, <laughs> like. But there's there's reasons why that has been foreclosed. Yeah. And when that is foreclosed, it's it's just inevitable. It's rational that people are going to uh, act out. Yeah. I mean, it. I mean, you know, for all the the dismissal of like being a union, like calling looting like femme as fuck or whatever. Like, I mean, you do need to kind of have a psychoanalytic uh, framework for this shit. Like, right. it's it's not rational. It's not about like we're going to we're going to start looting so this thing happens. It's libidinal. It is. It's an emotional response to often decades and generations of abuse and neglect. Yeah. Um. And I mean to. You can't condemn it. I mean, this is like what MLK said about looting, right? Like, it's the voice of the voiceless or whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's not about saying it's good or bad or defending it. It's about saying this is what happens in a society that that treats people like they're disposable and neglects people. And uh, the MLK example uh, Osterweil addresses here, uh, this you know famous line about looting. But I think, and you know, we can get back to it. I I think you're exactly right, basically. Um, and you're right. We talked about this when the uprising started. Uh, it seems obvious to anyone, uh, I would think, uh, who is not you know 
uh, yeah, committed to the cult of property that says you should shoot looters on sight because that is such a, you know, a, a, yeah. yeah, a transgression that it requires the death penalty. That is a sick thing. And uh, if this book had been an exploration of the American fixation on property that leads to the attacks on looting from the other end of the moral spectrum, right? Yeah. If you moralize looting in either direction, you're doing it wrong. Like, right. it, it is not a moral proposition the same way someone stealing a piece of bread is not a moral issue, right? Yeah. Uh, um, but looting is not good in the sense that it won't lead to the it, it won't lead to what we were just saying, the causes of looting, communities being under-resourced and neglected. Looting won't lead to then communities becoming uh, well-resourced and getting what they need and people not being neglected anymore. So in that sense, it's not good, right? Because it's not going to lead to the improvements that these people need. So, and Osterweil actually talks about yeah. this. She says, and I think this is a... Uh, convincing argument that she makes to some degree is, uh, and this is sort of what she's talking about with the femme as fuck thing, is uh, she has this consistent metaphor throughout the book by consistent I mean she brings it up like three times when it's useful, like most of the book but she compares looting to birth and says that actually one of the benefits from looting is that it gives birth to movements that are much more radical. And I think that is demonstrably true, that uh, the Watts Rebellion gave birth to the, uh, you know, uh, the Black Panther Party at its height, uh, that the Detroit riots in the 60s uh, gave birth to, uh, like, an incredibly energized labor movement in Detroit. I think that that's all true. But again, like you're talking about, this, these are, you can call it birth if you want, or you can call it this moment of rupture. Whatever it is, uh, the next stage is... Organize, organizing. It is an yeah. organization. Uh, it's a party. It's a movement. Uh, and then you get the things you want, right? Like, uh, getting, you know, Osterweil has this line in all of her interviews about, like, well, looting is totally rational. People rational people know what they're doing. They're getting the thing that they need immediately. But, of course, that doesn't solve your problem long term. And everyone who loots knows that. It's not like anyone thinks that this is, you know, uh, yeah, a break in the fabric of reality. Yeah. And after that point, things will get better. Uh, exactly. Looting is, yeah, this desperate situation and uh uh yeah i i think that this is like a fundamental uh <laughs> yeah problem with Osterwell's book is this uh yeah this um attack on the idol of organization as she sees it it's, it's also you're talking about mlk i think it's instructive to look at past uh examples of uh, tactics uh if we want to call looting that um, which I, th I think it's fine to call looting a tactic, whatever, like, behaviors uh, of oppressed people. Like, I think it's instructive to look at past tactics ex historically uh, that have been moralized the way looting has as, you know, this evil, degenerate sign of, uh, you know, a corrupted culture of a group of people. Uh, I, throughout this book, kept thinking of, uh, and, you know, what you're talking about, uh, I keep thinking of um, suicide bombings in Palestine and the way that Edward Said was always asked to account for the morality of terrorism uh, from the Palestinian side in Israel-Palestine conflicts. And what Said always said was, you know, they would ask him, like, well, do you think it's okay that the Palestinians do terrorism to civilian populations? And he would say, does anyone justify that? Like, Anyone who you've had on your programs, anyone at the UN, does anyone, does even anyone in the Palestinian Authority say that that's a good thing that's desirable, that people blow themselves up on buses? Right. And every interlocutor that he has to talk to says, like, no. Uh, and he says, of course not. But the problem is that terrorism is a result of Israeli and U.S. terrorism that 
dwarfs it in its scale. Right. Uh, that this is a terroristic society that uh, communities can only respond to terroristically. Uh, that is, I think, the point that everyone takes from looting every time it happens on a mass level. This is something the masses understand. If you want to talk about, like, uh, you know, the mass line, like. Yeah, this is what people said in Ferguson. This is what people said about the George Floyd uprisings, the Chicago riots we had recently. Uh, is yeah, like who are the looters? And looters understand that the people who spray paint, you know, you have stolen from us more than we could ever loot. Like that is the expression that everyone can understand and like knows is true. Is that the real, the biggest looting, the biggest terrorism is slavery, genocide, capitalism, is right. exploitation and ghettos. Like this is the, yeah, this is the looting in our society. If you want to talk about looting, like that is the big problem. Yeah, where did property come from? Right. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like property is theft and. I was so frustrated. Osterweil has a whole chapter on white terror. She calls it white riot in this one chapter. Uh, but throughout, I was really disappointed in how little attention was given to reactionary looting uh, and the way it was handled. Because obviously, like, there are bad kinds of looting that we, like, don't support, right? right. Uh, Osterweil talks about, like, her Jewish experience uh, and Pesach, you know, teaching her to, like, treat the slaves that she's descended from mythologically as, like, herself and her position. Uh, she talks about Pesach more by infinity because she doesn't mention it she talks about pace off more than pogroms in this book right. and for a jew to talk about looting like it makes no sense for me to not talk about uh, ethnic cleansing and riot in that sense like those are riots as well uh yeah sure you know the uh just like yeah, the crystal knock yeah, yeah that was um, that was looting that was looting yeah. right uh like <laughs> uh the crusades that was looting. Yeah. Like, you can think of endless examples. Like, the Mongols looted. War, in war in general, people loot. And sometimes that is justified if right. you think that the people fighting are the good guys. And sometimes it's not. If you yeah, think sometimes the bad looting guys. isn't them as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I don't think like... looting them? Like... Yeah. <laughs> sometimes it's masks. <laughs> Uh, and yeah. Osterweil twists herself into pretzels. To, Does she address that at all? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Osterweil yeah. admits she says like the one thing uh, you know one thing that uh, I am like uh, you know not satisfied with about this book. There's a lot that I'm not satisfied personally with the book. But one one thing she does cop to is she says this book basically only talks about the U.S. and those geographic confines. Yeah. Though I mean, also you can point to like white supremacists, like right, yes. like I mean, what was like the Tulsa massacre? So. Yeah. So yes. So let's get to this. So actually, so you know, we're talking about like yeah, the Crusades like plenty and the of, Mongols, plenty but... of incidents of like the clan yes. doing pogroms on like black communities yeah. in America and looting. Exactly. And so she does address that in like one chapter in particular, which is this white riot chapter. But twists herself into knots to try to say this is a different kind of looting. Uh, for well, example, sure. like right, yeah. like yes, like obvious, you know, uh, and, and you know, like. It, it, like first of all, you can. There are a bunch of different lines of attack that you can uh, say. Like this is a different kind of looting from obviously, right? Yeah. Like uh, for one thing, th these are you know these looting riots, these white riots are often organized by like people in the government, right? Like the police right. are you know if not actively involved, with they usually are in these cases. Uh, they you know give. Uh, a sanction to it the same way pogroms in Russia in the Russian Empire happened right uh, like and the way yeah fascist terror has always functioned but of course like 
Osterweil can't use that as a distinction between like white looting and black looting because her argument is partly that black looting is organized in a way that people don't usually appreciate. Uh, that there are vanguards in that who are often like the most politically active and educated people in the community. So she doesn't really talk about that a whole lot. More what she focuses on is the relation to property, which in the Tulsa riot, she talks about um, you know, this is ac- this is actually like the one time where she makes a point where she says like, uh, it, and I think it was the Tulsa riot. It might have been another one, but um, yeah. Actually, let me see if I can find this direct quote because this is kind of cool. Here it is. Okay, so this is about uh, the the you know you can call it a pogrom, you can call it uh, whatever you want. Like uh, yeah, this race riot in Elaine, Arkansas, in 1919. She takes this one example and talks about how most of the looting that was done by white people of the black community happened after the police and federal troops came in and ended the riot, uh, you know, whatever. Um, And she says here, tactically, the difference between how and when the looting happened is instructive. The looting that did occur didn't appear to actually happen during the riot, but rather in its aftermath, after federal soldiers had restored order. White people taking black people's things is what happens under the conditions of order, not the conditions of riot. Huh. Of course, this is totally undercut by every other example of yeah. white riot that she gives. Tulsa is a great one. She spends a ton of time on Tulsa um, as kind of like the uh, end of this chapter, as I remember it, uh, if I have it right. Um, and, of course, like looting was happening during that riot constantly. And, of course, looting was happening in all of these cases, like uh, the same way it happened in pogroms against Jews, the same way it happened with the Crusades, the same way it happened when Mehmet II took Constantinople. Uh, like people who are organized in a military fashion loot as they are taking over a place. That is like mostly when this happens. The fact that yeah. you can point out one example where, uh, you know, the like difference between order and chaos like fits your schema, uh, like just speaks to how bad the, uh, you know, history of this. Yeah. I mean, is. that seems like the better, I mean, if you're going to do an indefensive looting or whatever, uh, I mean, it does seem like the, the, the better argument, which probably wouldn't be book length, is like, yeah. well, yeah, when, you know, when, like, poor black communities loot, it's not looting, it's looting back. Yes, exactly. Right, exactly. Yeah. Which, again... Again, the graffiti of the, like, you've stolen more than we can ever loot. That right? expresses it better yeah. than this book could ever right. do, right? Uh, yes, that's exactly right. Um, but instead of like that kind of slogan explanation, which is totally reasonable, uh, you need to do this whole taxonomy that doesn't that is totally undercut by every factual piece of evidence that Osterweil gives. Uh, it turns into this mythology. So uh, yeah, that's that's how she addresses White Riot. Um, again, you know, we can come back to this. Yeah, I don't want to like I could kind of go on forever, but I want to get right to uh, this page that I sent you about the difference between a a riot and an army hmm. or the difference between a social and a military struggle in Osterweil's terms and I want to read from this section uh, at a little bit of length uh, just to give you context listeners this is on two this is on page 210 200 pages in finally there is an argument that I think you know actually deserves engaging with many radicals so this is in the context of 
the Detroit riots. This is, I think, what the movie was about, right? Detroit? The Catherine Bigelow movie. Yeah, exactly. Uh, It was the 1968 Detroit riots, which are this incredible moment in history, actually, and, like, all the civil rights leaders of the age come to Detroit and try to quell the rioting and get laughed away and, like, throw shit at them. That, yeah, it it was just this breaking point in Detroit, which, like, if you know anything about Detroit, you know, the kind of history of, uh, yeah, just total immiseration of the black population there. But so this is uh, talking about how LBJ sent in the 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions of the U.S. Army, which had just come back from Vietnam, rolled tanks through Detroit and armored personal carriers. And, you know, like for, I think, most revolutionaries, not just in the U.S., around the world, like this is a perfect expression of American empire is that, uh, you know, you, you do the empire on the Vietnamese people and the black people at the same time with the exact same methods like what could be a more perfect expression of why everyone needs to engage the way the vietnamese have militarily to get rid of this empire right uh and free yourself of it but osterweil doesn't come to this conclusion she says many radicals fetishized military style conflict as the sign of true revolutionary potential this was especially true of the movements of the late 60s and early 70s that all proclaimed armed struggle and saw the guerrilla as something of a revolutionary saint. But the revolutionary content of the riots does not lie mainly in these military aspects. The shooting is a small piece, not the main component of the attack on white supremacy, the state, the property, and the commodity. And here she's also speaking of the fact that uh, rioters and mostly black rioters in Detroit, as in many of these urban uprisings, shot at cops and uh, soldiers uh, to keep them out of areas mostly, uh, but often to to kill or to maim. And this was like... yeah. A new phenomenon to a large degree. Whereas armed self-defense will always be an important part of struggles for liberation, the arms themselves have no magical property to make our movements more serious, more revolutionary, more powerful. In particular, I would take issue with more powerful not being affected by the number of guns you have and people right. who can use them. The power of the attack, that's me, coming back to her, the power of the attack on white settler society is seen instead in the broad lawlessness property destruction, looting, and cop-free zones produced by the riot and is reflected in the attendant sense of freedom, unity, and radical safety felt by the rioters. And it's worth reading, like, sorry to go on, but there is a enormous footnote, one of the biggest in the book, uh, at the very end of this paragraph. The shooting of a few cops and soldiers may well be necessary in the course of a revolutionary struggle, but the emphasis on snipers by the police and media isn't merely a repressive justification strategy. She's talking about, like, the media fixation on, like, black snipers in these riots. It is also a kind of strategic optimism. The state wants to face its enemies in a military conflict, not a social one. I'm, I'm, as Dan, I'm going to repeat that. The, the state wants to face its enemies in a military conflict, not a social one. Yeah, what is that? Is she, you know, talking about, like, nonviolent resistance or something? So this is the this is the whole problem. Uh, just to uh, yeah. finish this out, the state wants to fight an army, not a mob. Armies, even perhaps especially guerrilla ones, are shaped around technical expertise and organization, supply lines and chains and logistics, hierarchy, the harshest discipline, right to punishment up to and including death, laws of conduct, and an overarching force of social unification. These are all core factors of a state. Any army must become a functional state in miniature. Thus, even if the revolutionaries with the war, the state will... Uh, sorry. 
Uh, even if the revolutionaries win the war, the state will persevere, merely transferred to more progressive bureaucrats. Real revolution will have been prevented in the militarization of the conflict, which really means the bureaucratization of the revolutionaries. This, no doubt, must be one of the basic lessons of the 20th century revolutions and anti-colonial victories that in many places dramatically improved daily life, but everywhere failed to revolutionize it. So, yeah, so she's basically, like, dismissing every, like, anti-colonial struggle in the 20th century. A hundred percent. And then... Calling them failures to revolutionize society. So what's her revolution, then, is just everything's the exact way it is, except, like, everybody's looting always. (laughs) (laughs) Or nothing can change, and the only freedom you ever experience is in these moments of looting that should happen more often. Right, because it's spiritual. It's about being transformed. It's about having your soul transformed. These temporary cop-free zones, these moments of carnival, uh, that is the only thing you can ever hope for. Not revolutionary change, which a revolutionary army certainly can't achieve because then you have a state and as just, soon as right. you have a state you're not a revolutionary anymore uh, but it, she's like not an anarchy I mean she I don't know if any, she's, she doesn't have any I, mean, I don't think she has an ideology yeah. I don't think uh, um, she certainly doesn't have a party you yeah know? and she wouldn't support yeah right she wouldn't support any movement of like colonized people like uh, you, yeah, like the Cuban Revolution or anything. The Vietnamese Revolution, yeah. the Chinese Revolution, uh, I mean, uh, like, Congo, I mean, the list, Angola, like, uh, uh, Algeria doesn't, right. uh, you know, can you totally, uh, uh, this thing about, like, uh, drastically improving people's way of life but not revolutionizing it. Like, what does she fucking mean by that? Uh, first of all, having no uh, concept of the way revolutionary militias, uh, militaries, paramilitaries, uh, and guerrillas operate, which is often very horizontally uh, and in, you know, individual cells. Like, this is the whole revolutionary theory of people's war is that you need a revolutionized army, whatever, you know, her terms are, revolutionized. Uh, You need a revolutionized army to beat an imperialist army. Uh, And, you know, just, like, look at... uh, Yeah, and, like, right, like, the idea if you... I mean, right, like... Let alone uh, what happens afterwards. Yeah, like, what, like, the army... First of all, I'm sure she would, uh, because she's a lib and like lives in like academia. Where do you know where she's a where she teaches? Um, I don't even know if she teaches. I, I think she lives in Philadelphia, yeah. and I think she's just a, a journalist. Like, Any, like comes from an academic yeah. family, so we call I'm her. I'm sure she supports like gun control. <laughs> like I'm sure totally, she supports yeah. like taking away everyone's guns. Yeah. And shit. Um, and, ex- except the governments. And like, in obviously. the Chotner, yeah, exactly. And in the Chotner interview, she seems actually like very wishy washy on the Bernie Sanders movement, which I think is interesting. Like, at, R- yeah. at times saying it was a crime that the Democrats crushed it, and at times saying, uh, well, it wouldn't have been good anyway. Um, right. Which, you know, like, uh, we're all, uh, you know, we're all liable to do something like that at some point, but like, uh, yeah, well, you have to pick a lane at yeah. some point. Like, uh, say that if it could have been successful, it would have been a good thing. Like, that's my position was, like, yeah, if you could have gotten social democracy. The same way Lenin said, like, unions getting victories is good for the people. Like, you want change that improves people's lives, uh, you know, until you can get the revolution. That That's, you know, she's not interested in that. So I don't even know what the idea of, like, change is for her. Uh, you know, the example she gives are, like, these short-lived movements that never saw themselves as the end goal. She seems to be totally confusing the ends and the means throughout this entire book. Uh, That is what a defense of a tactic is, obviously. Like, 
you know, this is why the United States Army, uh, like, has people read Mao's on guerrilla warfare, is because a tactic has no morality, it has no politics, it can be used for any kind of strategy toward any kind of end goal. But for her, this experience of breaking out of, I don't know, authoritarian life, uh, this lifestyle, that is the entire point for her. Uh, so she totally denigrates every fucking revolutionary movement of the 20th century that completely changed people's lives across the globe. That, yeah, like, uh, just like all of the movements she's describing also suffered incredible setbacks and defeats in the face of the neoliberal counter-revolution. But, like, just read memoirs and autobiographies of people who have lived through the Cuban Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, any of these experiences, uh, the way it changed their daily lives, the way, like, th to brush off, you know, the drastic improvement of people's lives is to totally misunderstand the revolution, that, like, uh, healthcare and education and literacy are these kind of secondary concerns, and that the revolutionizing of a moment of your life is all that matters. Right. Yeah, right. Because I mean, it, again, it's all about it's all about purifying your soul and having, and and even so that like truly the the real revolutionary action is not even looting; it is writing this book. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's like it's actually just about who has the best views on shit. Yeah. Right. Um, and that somehow, yeah. yeah, she is revolutionizing these people's yeah. lives by giving them the theory of this book. And I thought it was funny. I saw like a Zay Jelani tweet and like whatever Zay Jelani like kind of sucks, but uh, kind of. And like it was just it was just you know like found this interesting passage from a defense of looting and it's like the copyright page yeah which is like okay on one hand that's stupid and that's like well well you uh are criticizing society and yet you use an iphone <laughs> it's a little bit like that but then it i mean it does kind of work in this specific instance because you're like you're defending looting and it's like uh yeah i mean you don't and have revolutionizing to, daily life yeah and like you don't have to copyright a book right like, like yeah, yeah you don't even have to publish it this way like yeah. you could release it online like a free. lot of a lot of radical people a lot of radical theorists don't copyright their work that's right give it away for free yeah uh, and like there are if you're looking for good defenses of looting uh like i'll put a couple that are you know similar to this concept but you know uh, like are available for free in the uh, description of this episode because like everyone has seen these go around these like pdfs uh you know and zines that people make like every fucking day in this country and others uh that people pass around and discuss uh in a way that is just separate from this kind of bourgeois academic uh minded publishing model yeah like the, i i think that's totally fair game honestly and like yeah it is it like annoying and fucked up and are people doing it for opportunistic and wrong reasons uh the fact that like the anti-woke quote the quote-unquote anti-woke left has like jumped on this book matt taibbi wrote an uh, uh review of this book that i think actually like is kind of right in its main thrust which is like comparing uh in defense of looting to steal this book right the abby hoffman yippee book right, yeah uh and for Matt Taibbi, it's like a knock on, you know, woke uh, millennials or whatever, intellectuals who, like, have never been outside. Like, he talks about Abby Hoffman, like, writing about, like, all the places where you can shoplift easily. Or, yeah. like, uh, yeah, like, tripping balls in front of, like, a public art or whatever. Uh, and it's like, yeah, there is so much more. If you're talking about, like, joy and, you know, being femme as fuck or whatever, like, that means to you. Like, yeah, this kind of disruptive, revolutionary, like, pleasure. Um, uh, like, none of that is in this book. This book is called, uh, uh, what is this? 
the subtitle is A Riotous History of Uncivil Action. Riotous could not be further from uh, the nature of this yeah. book. Like, not funny, not fun. Right. Uh, like, nothing, you know, totally self-serious. Yeah, it's just, it's bad. <laughs> so, yeah, that's like, this is most of it. I did want to just end with, uh, unless there's, like, other stuff you want to talk about. I know that, like, the coverage of this has been really funny. Like, the NPR interview that they scrubbed from the internet. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. But I did just want to end with this reference that I thought was really interesting. Let me see if I can get to this page. Yeah, and, right, again, like, this distinction between, yeah, warfare and the mob. Like, again, just distinguishing between good and bad kinds of destruction. Like can't get over this hang-up that, like, you do have to actually say that some kinds of violence are bad, whatever. Yeah, in her discussion about the Watts riot, which I guess was 66, Watts remained a touchstone of BPP analysis, Black Panther Party analysis, as Newton said in a speech called The Correct Handling of a Revolution. Rioting like Watts was politically powerful because it could not be reinterpreted or easily recuperated by the press. In Watts, quote, the economy and property of the oppressor was destroyed to such an extent that no matter how the oppressor tried in his press to whitewash the activities of the black brothers, the real nature and cause of the activity was communicated to every black community. The Panthers aimed to produce, uh, this is, that's the end of the quote, the Panthers aimed to produce similarly unambiguous actions through both their armed actions and their powerful community programs. This is, I would say, the one good thing in this book is that, like, most of it is not even about looting, which is disappointing. Uh, most of it is not even a defense of looting. Um, often there are big chapters of, like, this is how bad things got, and that's really bad, and then no interest in, like, talking about what the looting meant in that case. But uh, to the extent that it's a beginner's history of looting in the U.S., uh, I think it can be useful in that way. And, like, the people that she's quoting from are, like often serious revolutionaries who had serious theory. Like, Huey Newton, who she quotes here from the Black Panther Party, like, Huey Newton was a serious theorist and, like, had real, uh, you know, useful thoughts on looting. This speech that she's talking about, the correct handling of a revolution, uh, this just, like, puts the lie to all of her, you know, anti-party, anti-organization uh, propaganda is, like, the correct handling of a revolution is a direct reference to a speech that Mao gave, the correct handling of the contradictions among the people, uh, and is just, like, shot through with Maoist language about, like, primary and secondary contradictions and relationships. Like, that was how Newton and the Black Panther Party understood themselves and grew themselves, uh, was, you know, yes, they understood looting as a moment within a guerrilla people's war, but they didn't understand it as an end in and of itself. Uh, and so I would recommend people look up the correct handling of a revolution, uh, because I think it's actually, like, a, a, a total, uh, uh, rejection of a lot of what Osterweil's conclusions here are. And in particular, Osterweil talks about the fact that the media is always going to condemn the dispossessed and the powerless and is always going to condemn looting in the U.S. because of the U.S.'s specific relationship with racialized property. Uh, and so she says there's no point in engaging with the media, actually. This is not at all how the Black Panthers understood the role of the media. And like most revolutionary parties with any success, one of the big planks of Black Panther tactics uh, and one of the things that made them most successful was a newspaper. You know, it was building revolutionary media and a, uh, you know, a sphere of discourse and dialogue where people could, like, 
talk about these issues seriously uh, and build the people's understanding of this differently. I don't think that people are lost, you know, in the way that Osterweil, I think, has this eternal image of, like, capitalism's just going to be capitalism, and there are going to be these moments where you get a, a flicker of hope, uh, and that's all that you can hope for. That's how I read this book generally, really, uh, and, you know, most of this kind of, like, depoliticized leftism, and I think we can look to the real history of revolution in this country and others and see an alternate vision. Nice. Yeah. All right. Cool. Cool. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah. Yeah, Dan, thanks for reading that. <laughs> that shitty book. Yeah, please go out, shoplift something for me. Uh, yeah. Have fun in a way I didn't. Uh, shoplift a better <laughs> book. All right, and yeah, thanks for listening. We'll, we'll be back next time. Right.